Today I'm going to begin a series of messages that will span six months. And I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you it's probably the most ambitious sermon series I've ever tackled in my career. Because I'm aiming for nothing less than fleshing out the very life and times of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I've done character studies before, but I've never attempted Jesus. But this is what I intend to do. And the reason is, is because I felt motivated after reading an article several months ago where a secular author in a secular publication was complaining about the decline of the church in America. And, and even if an unchurched person or a secular scholar uh, can recognize that when the church is in decline, there are a lot of things in the country that go down with it. And this was the point that the, the person was making, that they have seen a decline in, in certain standards and qualities of America that had made it great. And why was it, if not in part, because America had disregarded the message that comes from the church? But then he went on to say that it probably has a lot to do with the fact that Christians have forgotten what their real message is and that many churches have become a lot of things that are easy to find in other parts of the world. And it's true that in the church we try to reach the community by communicating and representing Christ in ways that are familiar. And so we walk a thin line where we're trying to relate to people in the times that we're living in, but at the same time, we have a unique product that we're offering, and we mustn't forget that. And this author of this article concluded by saying, Christians, you have one thing that no one else can offer, and that's Jesus Christ. And I thought if a secular author can point out to us that the obvious product that we have that is unique in all the world is Jesus Christ, then why not talk about him exclusively for a change? And so I set about praying and preparing to make it a mission over the next six months to talk about Jesus a lot and hope that perhaps those people who are outside of our community might recognize that we're in a business that is entirely present and possible because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that it is Jesus we proclaim and not all of our technology or our good music or all of our entertainment features or any of those things that make clubs and organizations fun to be a part of. You know, we'd like for you to have fun while you're here, but that's not our message. In fact, that's one of the reasons I believe the church is in decline across the country in the Western world. So with that in mind, I want to begin the series today by explaining how Jesus became a part of this church's story and the human story. With that, I'm going to turn it over to our reader and ask that you follow along. Jamie Lofton, if you want to come on up, we're going to read Luke 24, verses 13 to 27, and she will read for you. <clears throat> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he began with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted to them all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Those two people got the, best, the greatest Bible study of all time. They really did. There's never been a better Bible study than the one taught by the guy who wrote the book, which is the first point that I'd like to make in this long journey with Jesus that I have planned for us. We must understand that Jesus cannot be fleshed out without beginning before the beginning. To understand that the story of Jesus begins before the beginning of all things. That Jesus has made it clear to us that he is the living word of God, the very presence of God on earth. That he is fully God and fully human. <clears throat> and therefore, his story begins before all of creation. We'll look at his life and understand that he is part of the Trinity. That is a doctrine that we hold in the Christian tradition that says that God is one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the Son. And therefore, we believe categorically that we have one God, and yet accept that in a way that is a bit of a mystery to us, God is three persons. There are no easy ways to explain this doctrine of the Trinity, and therefore it has left many confused. And yet, this is why we call it a holy mystery. And a mystery, as I've told you on other occasions in the church, is not to be thought of as a crime to be solved or some treasure to be sought. It is a, 
It is a mystery in that there are certain things that are beyond our ken or our intellectual capacity. And that's simply God's way of saying, if you could figure me out, I wouldn't be much of a God. And since God is beyond us, this is one of the reasons that we worship and glorify God. It would be difficult to worship and glorify one who was conceivably equal to us if we were able to figure them out that carefully and that completely. There are indications from the very beginning of time that Jesus, the Son, would become flesh and that he would be the one through whom God would redeem the world. Let me point you to an example from Genesis chapter 3. Remember that in the first two chapters, we saw the construction of the Garden of Eden and the perfected creation. And we saw in that the coming of the man and the woman and ultimately the coming of sin as Satan entered into the garden and deceived the woman and caused both of them, man and woman, to sin. And after having been cast out of the garden because of their sin, God clothed them and hid them from the, the risk of the world and the knowledge of life and death, so to speak, through the shedding of blood. It's implied, but it's clear that when they were covered with animal skins, that an animal must have died in order to make that possible. And then we learn pretty quickly after that, that there was a system of sacrifices established so that even when Cain and Abel were sacrificing, Cain's sacrifice was insufficient and displeased God so that Cain killed Abel out of resentment for the quality of Abel's sacrifice. And tucked in between those events is a little line from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that says, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is very interesting because the Bible says specifically the seed of the woman. Now, without getting graphic, I just want to point out to you that it's been universally accepted throughout the cultures of history and recorded history that the seed comes from the man. That in most written explanations of the nature of the relationship between men and women and the coming of children and generations of family, it is always thought that the seed is of the man. And yet in this case, God specifically states, as he's casting Satan and the two sinners out of the garden, that it is the seed of the woman that will bring about the bruising of the serpent's head, the serpent being Satan. Now we have the benefit of having witnessed the good news, the New Testament, the gospel, so that we understand that Mary, who without having the usual relationship with the man, conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so we understand then that in this one and only case in human history, the seed was with the woman. And the seed would bear Jesus Christ, who would be the one who was the son of Mary and the son of God. And this would be the one who certainly bruised the serpent's head. And the one the serpent sought to kill 
in every case possible. In fact, as we unfold this story of Jesus, one of the things that we will come to learn, even in the pre-incarnate, that is the time before he became flesh and blood, we will see that Satan has worked diligently nipping at the heels of the Savior, the Christ, to try to eliminate the bloodlines, for example, that would produce Jesus. And so in a very real way, this serpent has been chasing God's Savior for a long time, even before he came to be on the earth. We'll, we'll learn, for example, that God has been telegraphing to us numerous messages through Scripture, through the prophets, through the various resources that God uses on earth, God's plan that it's not a mystery that God intended to do exactly what God did. And one of the ways I can illustrate that for you is using something that you have in your Bible called the begats. I call it the begats. If you've ever attempted to read the entire Bible from cover to cover, and I would urge you to do that if you've never done so, because you'll see the complete story in a way that you would not if you just continue to read it piece by piece. But, but be warned, when you read your entire Bible, you'll get to some places that will seem very tedious. Those begats. Enoch begat Enos. Or Seth begat Enos. And Enos lived 107 years. And he begat sons and daughters. Begat, begat, begat. Gave birth to, produced. And you start reading these names for several minutes at a time and they're hard to pronounce. And they seem tedious and irrelevant. And you think, why is this even here? Why do we hear the lands they came from and the numbers of their generations and the names of all the heads of the households. Why, why is all this in the Bible? And, and of course, some people will give you reasons. They'll say, oh, it's because the Bible's a historical document and, you know, it, it's, it's what they did in those days. And, and all of that isn't untrue. But I'm going to tell you something that I believe with all my heart. I believe the Bible is a message from our Creator to us. I do not believe it is an exclusive thing. I believe God communicates with us in many ways, but I believe that it is the primary source of God's communication with humanity. And I believe God wrote this book. Though flawed individuals were in charge of the penmanship and the various things that are, are written down, I believe with all my heart that the Bible is a message from God to us. And I'm going to teach you something today that might help you to be convinced of that too. If you have a basic Bible dictionary, you can do this exercise. A simple Bible dictionary will give you the ability to look up the names in those begats. And you'll look up those names and you'll see what their names mean. For example, in the lineage of Noah, you ready for this? From the time of the fall of man, of sin into the world to the time of Noah and the great flood. In chapter 5 of Genesis, we're given the names of his lineage. And this, by the way, is there to show 
that Noah's bloodline is pure, which is a whole other story that I could share with you sometime to give some explanation for the flood. But for now, listen to this. If you look up the name Adam, it means man. The Adam means humanity. It's, it's a word that means humankind or man. His son Seth, Seth means appointed. Enosh, the son of Seth, his name means mortal. Kenan, the son of Enosh's name means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed of God. Jared means descending. Enoch means to preach or to teach. Methuselah means his death shall bring. By the way, his, his, na his name, Methuselah, is a, is a prophetic prediction of the flood because basically God said when Methuselah dies, the flood comes. Can you imagine all of Methuselah's buddies trying to protect him, keep him from getting hurt? Hey, you got a little sniffle there, Methuselah? What have you done about that? You need to go see a doctor. They're going to keep Methuselah alive. That's really funny if you think about it. Methuselah gave birth to Lamech, which means despairing. And Lamech gave birth to Noah, who was comfort and rest. Interesting how their names mean all of these things. If you do the parsing, that is the examination of the language of the original writing, and add the appropriate tenses to the words, guess what those names say in a sentence? Man is appointed to mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring to the despairing comfort. Do you hear that? The names of Noah's lineage make a sentence that says, Man is appointed to mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring to the despairing comfort and rest. The Bible's been talking about Jesus from the very beginning. From, from the moment the pages started becoming words written on scrolls and passed down through the ages, the message has been written in the stars even, which again is another examination I'd love to help you look into someday. But if you want to research it, you can do some examining of, of the internet. And of course, that's a little dangerous. Look for quality sources. But what you find is that God's even communicated the story in the stars. God's been talking to us about his son and his plan of redemption since the sin entered the world. This son truly is eternal. This son truly is beyond our ability to comprehend, beyond our ken. And this is something Jesus made very clear even while he walked the earth among us. So much so that he brought down a lot of derision and hatred on himself because it was just too much for people to take. Philip, one of his faithful apostles, said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
later in John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you understand that this sent those Pharisees and religious authorities into a complete meltdown? Jesus used the same words to describe himself that God used to describe himself to, know, to Moses when he saw him at the burning bush. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is stating without hesitation, without confusion, that he is God in the flesh. And so they couldn't accept that that could really happen, and therefore they called him a blasphemer, and they tried to kill him, and eventually succeeded when it was his time. Let's just consider what he told them for a minute. He said he knew Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, in verses 1 to 2, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. The word Lord in this place, in this passage, means God appeared to him in the flesh and in a present experience that for Abraham was like the visiting of guests. There's no doubt then that Abraham knew encounters with God, had become familiar with encountering God. In fact, there are five places in Scripture where we see God encountering Abraham and Abraham conversing with God. First, when he was called in Genesis 12. Then when Abraham parted ways with Lot in Genesis 13. Then possibly when he met Melchizedek. Well, most people believe Melchizedek, the great high priest, is Jesus. And later on, we'll see in the letters to the Hebrews and various other gospel accounts, in various accounts of the gospel, rather, we'll see that Melchizedek is associated with Jesus as the great high priest, the one who stands in the breach between humanity and God. And then when God made covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and when God restated his covenant to Abraham in Genesis 17. God and Abraham had met several times in the book of Genesis and Jesus told the Pharisees, I was there. I met him there. So what did Jesus say to those disciples as they walked on that road to Emmaus in the greatest Bible study of all time? Well, I don't know exactly what he told them, but here's some things in the scripture that might help us understand who Jesus is and what he might have said to the apostles and the disciples, rather, on the road to Emmaus. He might have pointed out to them that in Isaiah 7:14 he would be born of a, in a, a, born of a virgin, and in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, we find that he was. He might have told them that in Micah 5, 2, he would be born in Bethlehem. And of course, we learn in Matthew chapter 2 that he was. He might have told them that Hosea 11:1 1 said that he would be taken to Egypt. And Matthew chapter 2, again, tells us that he was. 
He might have said in Isaiah 53, he would heal and make people whole. And we read in Matthew chapter 8 that he did. He might have pointed out to them that in Psalm 22, among other psalms, he would be crucified. And in Matthew 27, we see that he was. In Isaiah 53, we learned that he would die for our sins. And the Gospel of John points out in chapter 11 that that is exactly why he died. And in Psalm 16, Jesus probably pointed out to them that he would rise from the dead. And of course, in Matthew chapter 28, he did. So all over your Bible, there are countless references to Jesus in your Old Testament that point to his coming, to his being all that he professed to be. And I've only scratched the surface. This would take so long and it would take so much study to try to show you all of this. But in faith, you know in your heart that these things are true. Because the other thing we know about Jesus is that he is eternal, that he has died, but he rose again. And that now in the flesh, he sits on the throne of God. And that through the Holy Spirit that he gave to us so that we might be in relationship with God. A Holy Spirit that couldn't come upon us without special preparation is now available to us simply by confessing Christ as our Savior so that we can have new birth in the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit testifies to our spirits so that we know even what we don't fully understand is, is to be true. That Holy Spirit tells us that even though Pastor Dan's only giving us a small taste of the proofs of Scripture, our hearts are singing just hearing it. And we hunger for more, not because we want to believe, but because our hearts yearn to know this Savior, Jesus, who has loved us so tenderly and intimately. And this is why we're going to study him over the next six months. Because as the book of Revelation tells us, he was, he is, and he is to come. And therefore, at this slightly early beginning to the season of Advent, we not only celebrate the story of his birth, but we remember that his second Advent is upon us right now. That we are anticipating his return. And as surely as all the promises and prophecies about him were fulfilled up to a point, all that remain to be fulfilled will certainly be fulfilled in our seeing and hearing. In other words, anything that hasn't been completed yet will be completed as completely as all that has been. And therefore, we anticipate his return with great joy and confidence that everything said about his coming again will come to pass. So let's get to know this Jesus over the next six months together. But you don't have to start after the series is over. You can start right now by simply saying, Jesus... I believe. Come into my heart. Forgive me for my sins. And open my mind so that I can know you and receive the spirit that changes everything. This is my hope for you, even as we pray together now. Almighty God, you've placed the word in my mouth, but more importantly, place your word in their hearts so that their nature can be changed, so that all of us together can be your servants and give you glory as we worship you with unending joy from now until eternity. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.